and welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. This is Dimitri Alperovich. I'm chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Today, my guest is Franz Stefan Gotti, a research fellow at IWIWS think tank in London, where he's focused on the future of conflict and war. I want to apologize in advance to you, as when we were recording this session with Franz Stefan this week, we ran into some technical difficulties, and the audio quality, unfortunately, did not turn out to be as stellar as the content. Please accept my deep apologies, and I hope you can still enjoy this episode. Here it is. Welcome, Franz Stefan. Thank you for having me, Dimitri. Absolutely. So let's start first with um, your trip. You recently took a trip with Mike Kaufman and Ryan Evans and uh, Conrad Muzica to Ukraine. What are your impressions from the trip? What, what surprised you? What are the things you learned from there? I guess one of the most surprising aspects of this trip was uh, when we took a trip, um, a battlefield tour, so to speak, um, around Kiev, trying to figure out what was really going on in the first couple of days of the war. And um, the conclusion became to that is that it was a very close-run thing and much closer than I think a lot of people um, would suspect in the first couple of days of this war, um, to what degree the Ukrainians were really um, able to fight off the Russians and how decentralized this was really um, the effort to beat back the Russians and how many volunteers were used um, in this effort and, and how many casualties were actually occurred, incurred on both sides in this conflict. Um, this probably was, was one of the more interesting aspects of this trip. Also, um, I think um, <clears throat> what I found very interesting is also, and this goes into an article that I recently have published also in Foreign Policy magazine, that is the highly decentralized nature of the Ukrainian uh, way of war, so to speak, and this ad hoc approach, this uh, bottom-up adaptation that is really prevalent in the Ukrainian armed forces, which often does not strike me as being particularly well-coordinated, uh, between units, and I think one of the lessons from this trip is that it's very hard to actually make some general observations. It really depends where you are, with what unit you are with, and um, the proverbial fog of peace, uh, excuse me, fog of war, <laughs> still prevails here. So I think we, we should generally be a lot more modest in some of our statements that we are making about this conflict. Well, it's amazing how much we don't really know about what's happened or what's going on. Uh, Rusi has just published a fantastic paper on the nature of the air war, both in the early stages of the war, but also um, even now, and the prevailing wisdom that Russian Air Force was not really having a lot of impact on the ground was dispelled to a great extent, I think, in this paper. Uh, they're flying a lot of sorties or flying a lot of sorties. Uh, in the initial days of the war and having a lot of effect at shutting down Ukrainian air defenses. <clears throat> and then um, I think we're only now learning about um, the impact of cyber as well, um, and particularly the impact of the Viasat hack. There's a lot of controversy, some of it on the Ukrainian side, and now saying, oh, well, that wasn't a big deal. Early on, they were saying this is a huge deal. Did you get any sense from uh, talking to the Ukrainians about the impact on communications in the first days of the war, because uh, with Viasat, of course, they were able to shut down satellite communications, but there was also a lot of jamming going on against radio communications. Um, were they able to coordinate um, their units um, in that first week of, of the invasion? So my impression has been, and again, this is really from a fairly narrow, narrow perspective here, and just talking to a few folks who were 
involved uh, in the battle um, of Kiev that there wasn't really a command and control issue on the Ukrainian side as a result of Russian interference. I think there was just a command and control issue because of the chaos that is fairly normal in the first couple of days of any war, um, I suspect. And um, the Ukrainians generally had little problem getting uh, communications uh, in place. The problem was sometimes that they just didn't know whom to call, um, coordinate strikes and so forth. And a lot of it was, again, uh, done relying on commercial products. So a lot of cell phones were used for targeting, for example. Pictures were taken where, um, you know, geotags and so forth that were sent back to the rear to, to artillery strike teams and so forth. So I don't think there was a lot of uh, Russian electronic warfare capabilities, for example, on the front line, which we now know is pretty much, you know, fairly an accurate picture um, in the first couple of days of this conflict, and this changed, of course, but um, when it came to, um, you know, some of the cyber attacks, I really didn't talk to many folks about this while I was over there, but there's good evidence now that it definitely disrupted Ukrainian command and control and among some of the regular forces. To what degree, though, it really uh, disrupted the communications of some of the volunteer forces, I'm not so sure about. And um, also, my understanding has really been that, that in the first couple of days, there was really little interference, at least when it came to some of the units uh, fighting uh, the Battle of Kiev uh, from the Russian side. And um, I do think, and I think I remember we chatted about this a, while, a couple of months ago, where actually ask you for, you know, what your thoughts are on the whole cyber dimension of this conflict. And you said you're probably not going to make any public statements about it because this would be akin to talking about the Second World War in 1941 or something like that. Drawing <laughs> lessons from it, that's right. Drawing less lessons, right, from the, the Second World War in 1941, yeah, with, you know. And I think that's a fairly accurate, uh, you know, statement and, and we should keep that in mind, yeah, when talking about this stuff here. Well, um, we'll keep that in mind, but uh, on the other hand, you've just published a paper on what the lessons learned are from this conflict, uh, particularly uh, with regards to what Taiwan should learn <clears throat> uh, from this conflict. Uh, it's a great paper in Foreign Policy Magazine, Six Wrong Lessons for Taiwan from the War in Ukraine. I encourage everyone to read it, but let, let's discuss that. So the first lesson you cite is that there are no game-changing weapons, and in this conflict there's been a lot of excitement on Twitter about uh, uh, TB2 drones, about uh, these uh, Mavic drones from China, and um, all sorts of uh, uh, nifty new, new tools like javelins that um, are popping up on the battlefield. Uh, but explain why you don't think any of them are really game-changing. Well, I think weapon systems obviously have an important role. Um, they're not game-changing because what we tend to forget, because I do think there's this... Uh, notion of uh, technological determinism in the West, and I think it is a problem, not just in the United States, but in other countries as well, of NATO and so forth. Um, we tend to forget that what really drives military effectiveness is not the weapon system per se, but how we use it, how we operate it. Concepts of employment, concepts of operation, is the right military doctrine in place to really guarantee that we use this weapon system most effectively. So I think for me, the major point was here to move away from this technological explanation uh, pertaining to military success to actually say, listen, there are other factors that sometimes are probably much more important than um, just having superior military technology. And there are countless examples in military history where this has been the case. So no, there are no Wunderwaffen um, 
wonder weapons. And um, I do think we would do very well to much more look at operational concepts, doctrine, and also force design, force structure, how we embed these weapon systems and platforms more effectively. And this is, I think, one of the lessons that I take from this conflict. And one of the things that's pretty obvious now, and again, so much is still unknown, but that this has really been a war of artillery since day one, and that javelins and N-laws uh, and TB2s have had some effect, but certainly not a uh, decisive effect on any of the battlefields, um, certainly not compared to the artillery um, on, on, on both, that's been used on both sides. But the one weapon I think that has caused Russia tremendous problems and the one that they still have not been able to develop a counter because you have seen them trying to adapt to the drones, for example. The jamming has become a lot more effective. You, you're not seeing a lot of TB2 activity nowadays because the battlefield is smaller and the electronic warfare is being, becoming more, much more effective. But the HIMARS is something that they just have not been able to solve, you know, the long-range artillery that the U.S. has provided to, to the Ukrainians. And it's really remarkable to me because you'd think that this is the military that's been so focused on the conflict with NATO and that they uh, you know, are an artillery-based military, the Russians are, and that they do not have an answer for an artillery system that the U.S. has had you know, since the 2000s. Uh, I, were you surprised by that? Yes, I was to a certain degree, but I think it also proves my point again. Um, we tend to focus on HIMARS as a weapon system alone and disregard the fact that the Ukrainians were fairly effective in integrating this into an overall warfighting concept on the ground, that is, uh, ISR capabilities that are necessary in order for HIMARS to uh, do its job effectively, then come up with a good, really, overall concept of operations where you uh, focus on key enemy nodes, command and control nodes, uh, supply depots, and so forth, and not waste your ammunition on targets that are really not as valuable. So I think it is much has much more to do with the concept of employment, the operational concept behind it, military doctrine, than the platform itself. And I think this is the key lesson here. And again, of course, when we focus on just the system, we tend to disregard all the other stuff that makes it work. But um, yes, it was certainly surprising, also because Generally speaking, when it comes to any military conflict, we have to think about it, uh, of it as a, as, a, as a dialectical competition, so to speak. And at the technical level, um, one technical um, uh, you know, capability can usually quite easily be countered by another technical capability. I always uh, like to cite um, the commander of the Reichswehr, the successor of the Imperial German Army um, after the First World War, Hans von Seigt, who said, um, against a technical problem, there will always be a technical solution, so to speak. And he was talking about this hype in the 1920s um, surrounding air power. And, you know, the bomb will always get through, right? right? It was, um, um, you know, the British prime minister uh, scaring the British people and, and so forth. And there was this big hype in the United States, Great Britain, France, Italy, but not in Germany in the interwar years. I think this was largely driven by a more pragmatic approach of people like Hans von Seck. Of course, they completely got strategic bombing wrong, which also brings me back to drawing the wrong lessons. And um, there was, for example, a lot of confirmation bias at the time in the German Luftwaffe in the 1930s, drawing the wrong lessons from the Spanish Civil War, where because of the lack of in large industrial targets, they thought that it, it confirmed their uh, tactical air doctrine and that they didn't really saw, saw much utility in having a strategic air doctrine and so forth. But I mean, I'm digressing here. In, in any case, I think the HIMARS example really proves my point. 
So the other lesson learned uh, you cite in the article is that it's surely to say that defense will, will dominate the future great power war. What do you mean by that? Well, there's this uh, understanding among, among some analysts that we're really moving in a defense-dominant operational environment. That is where it's extremely much more difficult um, um, to attack than to defend. And I'm not talking about the usual three-to-one ratio that you need you know, for one person defending you need three people. Um, attacking and so forth, but that generally we are entering a new age where the defense is going to be structurally more dominant or the balance. I don't really like the term dominance, frankly. You know, maybe the balance is shifting towards the defense. And um, there's a good argument to be made um, around, uh, you know, around this uh, this proposition, mostly based on um, technological aspects. For example, the ubiquity of sensors in the modern data space and so forth. That makes it extremely difficult for ground forces, at least, to mass and attack, um, to achieve tactical surprise and so forth. But Although the Ukrainians just did in Kharkiv, right? <laughs> right. And so, to me, though, the, the lesson here is really too premature to draw any real conclusions, and particularly when one looks at the difference between, like, a continental operational environment, like you see in Ukraine at the moment, and then the future maritime operational environment. I think one has to separate between the ground, air. Um, and uh, uh, sea domains of warfare, of course, because they're different, you know, the, the offense-defense balance is shifting depending on what domain we are talking about. But I do think you can make a fairly good argument based on technological capabilities that it's going to be very difficult in the future to achieve tactical surprise and attack. But there are all these other factors that um, are not part of that discussion then if we focus just on the technological level. Uh, for example, um, tactical surprise can be achieved, as we've seen in Ukraine, not so much because the other side is not capable of seeing of what you're doing, because the Russians were fairly aware of uh, the Ukrainian forces massing uh, in, in the Kharkiv region, right? But because of some, uh, you know, outdated or you know very rigid uh, command structure that really made it difficult for them to pass on that information, then military commanders apparently did not really know what to do with it. And also uh, because uh, the Ukrainians were fairly effective in their information warfare campaign, um, drawing forces into Kherson region, it was also too late to divert um, or you know, to, to regroup and then push Russian forces um, um, back to the Kharkiv region and so forth. So um, I think um, my main major uh, lesson here is that it's too early to really make, make a prediction about this and that one has to be extremely careful about applying some of the lessons that we maybe draw from Ukraine and apply it to Taiwan because those two cases will be extremely, extremely different. Having said all of that, I do think you can make a good argument that there is going to be a shifting balance towards the, the defense on a technical level and primarily pertaining to the ground domain. But haven't we seen that balance shift really over the last 50 or 60 years? Uh, you know, one of the things we've learned is that invading invasion of countries is really difficult. We learned that in Vietnam. Uh, we learned that in Iraq. Uh, you know, you can invade, but then you have a counterinsurgency campaign that's really difficult to um, to prevent. Afghanistan, now Russia's learning that in Ukraine. Uh, you know, you look at how quickly countries were invaded in World War II or even immediately post-World War II. And that started to shift in the 60s, 70s, and, and right. later on, right? No, I think, I think you can, yeah, you're absolutely right. If you go back to, um, you know, the last two years of the First World War, 
this concept of combined arms operations was essentially invented um, or because they were try, trying to break the deadlock. They were trying to somehow figure out how we can circumvent this you know, defensive uh, dominant operational environment of the First World War. And you, they came up with a couple of innovative operational concepts, the Sturmtruppen, for example, in Germany and Austria-Hungary and so forth, where it was really much more about um, fairly surgical artillery strikes, followed by um, you know uh, assault troops that were punching through the front line at very concentrated spots and so forth. And it was really about the effective integration of um, aerial reconnaissance with artillery and then ground forces, right? So classic combined arms maneuver. And in Ukraine, we really only have seen rudimentary elements of uh, combined arms maneuver, right? We've seen it in, in some shape and form in the Kharkiv offensive, for example. We haven't really seen it on the Russian side um, so far fairly effectively applied at all. And I think, again, here, uh, if you think about this concept that combined arms operations was really invented to break the deadlock of an offense, uh, of a defensive dominant operational environment, it's just too premature to make any judgments based on what we've seen in Ukraine, just because the one thing that was invented to, to counter this sort of operational environment has not really been properly applied in this conflict yet. So perhaps if the Ukrainians will get better um, or, you know, over the next couple of months in executing combined arms operation, maybe the, the front line will even become more fluid. Of course, that's just one factor of many other factors. But again, going back to my argument, there are technical reasons or technical uh, arguments why the defensive balance is yeah. going to shift. Um, why this, you know, offense-defense balance is going to shift uh, in the favor of the defense. Now, one of the reasons we have not seen effective combined arms on either side, at least uh, in regards to the air component, is because of the prevalence of air defense systems on both sides. They're extraordinarily effective. You know, on the Ukrainian side, really prevented Russia from dominating the air airspace. But um, you know, similarly on the Ukrainian side, they're very much afraid of Russian air defense systems that are extraordinarily effective. So um, it is interesting, um, you know, there's probably no um, country um, that has the capability to suppress uh, and destroy enemy air defenses like the United States, right? The, even most of the European um, countries do not have the capability, maybe Israel to some extent, but um, that may be one of the lessons learned is the you know renewed importance of um, shutting down integrated air defenses. Although. You know, even I would question how effective we would be at shutting down even Ukraine air defenses if we were invading Ukraine. Obviously, we would be able to get the job done, but we'd probably lose quite a few planes doing that. I think you're absolutely right about that. And um, one other aspect that I found particularly interesting when it comes to the war in Ukraine is also whether we should rethink um, our force structure to a certain degree if we assume that airspace is going to be contested in the future and... Uh, that it's going to be extremely difficult to execute um, air campaigns in such an operational environment. Maybe we need to have a larger conversation about shifting some of our firepower from the air domain to the ground domain, for example. Here in the United States, the U.S. Army is already thinking through these problems, right? With you know, it's it's new, uh, uh, you know, force structure where they really try to emphasize ground-based fires and so forth, not just in Europe but also in the Pacific in the potential. A Pacific theater of operations in, in the near future, but to me, yes, maybe this is something that's going to stay around. Having said that, again, we sort of have known prior to the outbreak of this conflict that the Russian aerospace forces are not going to be such a huge factor in this conflict because, as we've seen also in, in our, you know, Russian uh, aerial oper air operations in Syria, for example, um, we sort of could tell that 
some of their capabilities are fairly rudimentary, right? And and so um, you know, we the idea that they would have uh, been deployed in a way like NATO air power would be deployed in Ukraine was, of course, always sort of uh, you know not something to take seriously. <laughs> Um, the other lesson learned you cite in the article is that commercial <clears throat> off-the-shelf technology is unlikely to play an outsized role in a great power war. So why is that? I mean, you, you see Starlink actually having enormous advantage for the Ukrainians and becoming a really critical capability. You see them integrating some of these <clears throat> commercial drones very effectively for ISR. Um, why, why don't you think it will be more decisive in future wars? Yeah, so I mean, I really am putting forward um, a fairly simple argument in that in that instance, essentially arguing that the reason why these capabilities have been exceptionally effective in Ukraine is because um, there are these safe havens in place that likely would not be in place in a great power war involving China, the United States, and Russia. That is. Um, you know, when we think about some of these capabilities that the United States and other Western countries are providing to Ukrainians, they're fairly secure supply chains that enable that. And um, in a great power war, these supply chains would be less secure. And you could really target also critical infrastructure supporting the delivery of these capabilities. Um, so, you know, we talk about the cloud, but there are obviously, obviously some are service <laughs> that are storing all this data. So, um, you know, if the Ukrainians are moving the government records outside of the country, in a war involving the United States, there would be no safe haven, right? And I think this is something that uh, policymakers in the United States and other uh, uh, Western countries need to uh, wrap their head around, right? So right, right now, Russia has not <clears throat> targeted <clears throat> the satellites provided by Starlink with their anti-sat weapons, but um, um, they could if right. they're in a conflict right. with the United States or if we're in a conflict with China, right? So that would right. be a different situation. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, um, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on the cyber dimension. Why haven't we seen wide-scale Russian <laughs> cyber attacks uh, disrupting some of these supply chains as well, right? Um, it's just, at least from what we can tell, and there's probably a lot we can't really know at this stage, but to me that was also quite surprising, because it would probably be less escalatory than kinetic strikes. So, and this is your fourth lesson here, is you should not assume that cyber operations will only play a small role in, in the great power conflict, and I do agree with that. Um, I have to say, I, I, I have been surprised that um, Russia has not responded more aggressively to sanctions and export controls that we've levied on them uh, with cyber attacks. And I think the reason is that Putin has been very cautious about escalating vis-a-vis uh, -vis the West. And even, forget cyber, even on the economic sphere, he is not engaged in significant retaliatory um, actions. He has done the gas cutoffs, of course, to Europe, but there's so much he could have done on the critical minerals piece of it, titanium, aluminum, nickel, uranium, all of um, the, the things that um, Russia is a, is a huge producer of. They have not cut it off. Um, they could have, um, you know, and they could have sustained that um, economically because uh, really most of their revenues are coming from oil sales, uh, not critical material sales. So um, I, I have been surprised that they've been so cautious about escalating, but I think they do fear uh, even um, more NATO involvement in this conflict. They know that they're not doing well as it is. So the last thing they need to uh, need, they need is, is, is NATO getting more aggressive and providing more long-range weapons and other capabilities, potentially even, uh, you know, getting involved uh, with um, air power or what have you. So I think that is a fear that they have um, that um, is, um, is um, you know, deterring their actions. And, um, 
you know, frankly, is uh, deterring us as well, right? So, uh, you know, as, as a friend of mine mentioned the other day, deterrence is messy, but it's actually working here. And the goal of deterrence is to prevent the other side from, from taking escalatory actions. And it uh, uh, affects us just like it affects Russia. And uh, it's, uh, it's unpleasant because we, we don't like to be constrained. But um, when we think about the value of constraining Russia, we have to appreciate that part of that cost is constraining ourselves. So cross-domain deterrence actually works in this case. (laughs) To some extent, yes. Uh, There are limits, but um, Mm -hmm. for sure. But on on cyber operations, you know, I think that, again, there's so much we don't know about what the Russians have done. Um, But, um, you know, when I look at the potential conflict with Taiwan uh, or over Taiwan and and, um, assuming that there's going to be U.S. involvement, um, it's very clear that there's going to be very different weapon systems that are going to be used much more networked uh, platforms like the F-35, like some of our naval assets that are much more vulnerable to cyber operations, at least to disable them or to impact and degrade their capabilities than the, you know, the old Soviet military hardware that the Ukrainians are, are using. So there, there's not a whole lot you can do in cyber to a D-30 howitzer that doesn't even have a chip in it, much less a, a network connection. Um, you could probably do more against some of the systems that we have provided, like HIMARS that have over-the-air update capability, but even that's quite unlimited. So it's certainly not as networked as most of the systems that uh, the United States would use in a conflict with China that would uh, present uh, a much broader target set um, for cyber operations. And I also believe in the case of a war over Taiwan involving the United States and China, China would, of course, be acutely aware of not wanting to vertically escalate such a conflict um, with the United States. And perhaps one could put forth an argument that this will make the use of offensive cyber capabilities even likelier. For example, uh, targeting U.S. airfields in the region with massive cyber attacks, right, shutting down essentially uh, command and control capabilities and so forth. Um, it would be less escalatory perhaps than hitting these bases with kinetic strikes, right? I mean, it's an. I'm not sure it would be actually because. Okay. Okay. So it, it might it might bring the U.S. Uh, into the fight right away, um, uh, because of the fear that our capabilities would be degraded over time if we don't use them now. Uh, yeah. we, we would lose them. So, um, but uh, you know, I, I think there's a big question of how China is going to think about Taiwanese invasion. Do they assume, and, and they would be probably correct to assume that we would be involved either way. So they might as well go all out against Guam, against Okinawa and other regional assets, both kinetically and through cyber, um, and not worry about escalation, just assuming that the U.S. will be brought into um, the, the, the fight anyway. Oh, that's a fair argument, yeah. So another lesson you cite here is that light, lighter, smaller, more mobile systems aren't likely to dominate the battle space in a future great power war. And that one, I think, is a little bit more controversial because this has been... Uh, a very mobile fight, both between the Russians and, and the Ukrainians. Um, a lot of loitering munitions that have been used, a lot of UAVs, but also a lot of smaller um, armored personnel carriers and the like. Um, you have not seen really mass armor driving down the battlefield, except in the early stages of the war with the um, Russian famous uh, attempt to take Kiev. Um, but um, why, do, why do you think that this is a wrong lesson from, the, from this conflict? Well, my basic argument here is that it's not either or, it's supposed to be both, right? So I'm really advocating a hybrid force structure when it comes to um, integrating lighter forces with more heavier 
heavier weapon systems uh, and capabilities. And I remember being in Ukraine a couple of weeks ago, and we were um, a couple of miles um, away from the Kherson front line at a command post of the Ukrainian ground forces and chatting, chatting with a Ukrainian soldier. And he essentially said, well, this war essentially is being fought or is you know, dependent on three factors. Artillery, artillery, artillery. So this is really a ground-based fire war, so to speak. It's really primarily driven by heavy artillery fire. It's amazing how much this is like World War One. You know, guys sitting in trenches lobbing artillery at each other, right? Well, the difference though is that there are actually capabilities that could potentially break that deadlock, right? And I think there is a completely different separate well, debate that needs to be ha had, you know, about about the space forces ratios. In this war, it's a tremendously long front line, thinly manned overall, and I do think this is another factor that we need to be very conscious of, in particular when we talk about war uh, over Taiwan, the geography is just so markedly different. This is a continental operational environment, maritime operational environment will be very different and will have many different lessons um, to learn when it comes to to, to you know like uh, applying all of this uh, to, to this conflict in Asia, right? Um, but my, my argument here is, is essentially that this is really more of a default solution on the Ukrainian side that is using these lighter, lighter armed forces uh, to, to advance and conduct offensive operations. It's not really their preferred choice. Their preferred choice would really be main battle tanks, um, armored personnel carriers, really much more protected mobility. So this is really much more um, a choice of necessity rather than something that they would really... Um, they just don't have enough of them. They just don't have enough of these capabilities. And I think it is a conversation, an ongoing conversation. I'm not saying that at some point it will be a replacement for um, the main battle tank. I do think there are sunk costs involved. There are opportunity costs also because there's a huge supply chain um, behind um, you know, any of these heavy formations. And there are also ways around it, right? How you can make these heavier formations more effective. You don't necessarily need to destroy tanks, but you just uh, supply, uh, destroy the supply chain, and these tanks fairly quickly become ineffective. Then, of course, also. But that's not new. I mean, that's, that's World War II. No, uh, was... Right, exactly. I mean, if they, you know, once you lose the Romanian oil fields, uh, Blitzkrieg is essentially, you know, yeah. um, um, if you don't have, you know, you, you know, your, your, your logistics behind it. But um, I think. I mean, the best argument I heard from a tank was from our mutual friend, Michael Kaufman, who said, if you're in infantry and you have to assault a fortified position, do you want to be in a tank or not? <laughs> and that's a pretty simple choice, right? Uh, that, is, that is true. And I do, well, I mean, one argument would be, it would probably be true if you are, um, you know, at the range of 1,000 to 3,000 meters, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the front line. But what about, um, how do you get, you know, how do you get to this, you know, effective operational range of the tank, right? There's, a, you know, 40 kilometers or whatever where you're fairly exposed unless you really operate in a combined arms fashion and also bigger targets attract, um, well, are more likely to attract precision fires, right? So, so I don't know whether the lesson here is that clear cut. My argument is that we need both in the likely future, a more hybrid force structure that involves both elements and effectively integrates both. Yeah. So your last lesson from the article is a really interesting one that no, Ukraine is not winning because it fights like us. There's been a lot of 
patting ourselves on the back uh, in this conflict from uh, many uh, current and former military personnel. They're saying, well, you know, because we've been training Ukrainians into NATO way of fighting uh, since 2014, this is really why they're winning. And, and you say that's not true. Yes, and I think this is probably the most dangerous lesson to be taken from this conflict. That is, they're, fight, uh, they're winning because they fight like us. Because it, it invites essentially intellectual self-complacency. And that's always, always a mistake. War is essentially always um, a dialectical competition. And once you think you figured it out, you're likely going to be proven wrong in the long run. So I, I'm really in favor of constantly re-examining our attitudes when it comes to these as objectively as possible, draw the right lessons, really, really um, viciously, viciously re-examine every single one of our doctrines, our concepts, and so forth. Because if you look at what has really happened over the last couple of months in Ukraine, particularly when you to go back to um, how we started this conversation, the Battle of Kiev, this battle was from my understanding, by and large, decided by volunteer forces who threw themselves in a fairly uncoordinated fashion against the enemy. A lot of these people didn't really have much training. They didn't have NATO training. What people told me is that they were actually Googling how to use some of these weapon systems that they got from depots, uh, weapons depots, and so forth. And this did not have anything to do with with NATO training, really. And um, some of the Analysts have also pointed out that um, Ukrainian, uh, excuse me, NATO military instructors actually learned a lot more over the years from Ukrainians uh, than the other way around because they have been fighting this war since 2014. They know much better how to fight the Russians than we do at this stage, I think. And well, and some of the lessons are not applicable. You know, NATO likes to fight with full air cover, right, and uh, dominance of, of, of the uh, uh, air battlefield. Um, so uh, having uh, both those lessons applied to Ukraine doesn't make a lot of sense because that's not the environment they fight in. But also the, the reverse is not true that, you know, the, here you have Ukrainian fighter pilots as one example flying at, you know, 100 uh, feet above the, above the surface, which you really wouldn't have NATO pilots doing anyway. So um, this is just, uh, you know, there, there are limits to, to learning lessons uh, in this conflict for both sides. Right. And for example, the other important thing here is what I always hear is, well, they have an NCO core and, you know, it's the force structure also that's, you know, being adopted to NATO standards or is in the process of being adapted to NATO, adopted to NATO standards and so forth. And there's very little evidence that this is really the case. There's been some confusion between um, a proper NCO Corps and just a lot of enlisted personnel with a lot of uh, fighting experience because they've been in battle since 2014, for example. There are major issues in terms of uh, payment, uh, retention rates, and so forth. And I have not seen a lot of evidence that there is actually a, a, you know, an effective Ukrainian non-commissioned officer corps similar to what we have in the West, right? Also, when it comes to our command philosophies, you know, mission command, for example, this idea that you have a commander's intent and from that you make up your own plans, but it's you know a fairly decentralized planning process where you essentially come up with a way of executing your commander's intent. I think that's also sort of a mistaken assumption. And you're confusing here really this ad hoc attitude of military planning process in Ukraine with um, mission command philosophy. And I think it invites also um, friction in, in a way that, that probably would not be the case in, in, um, in NATO NATO force at this level, right? So that means that there's, you know, a lot of maybe uncoordinated action between battalions, 
brigades and so forth. And I think it's very difficult sometimes to con deconflict these these operations. But again, it works. Um, and um, it's always, you know, when we talk about military power, it's um, always, of course, relative. So if, you know, the stuff that I saw on the Ukrainian side, and if I was not really convinced by some of the things that I saw, how they were executing the operations, it, li it, it likely is a lot worse on the Russian side at this stage. So this article says, uh, you know, it's titled Six Wrong Lessons. You did not write the article Six Right Lessons, but I think probably the biggest lesson that we can extract for Taiwan from this conflict is the importance of Poland, right? If we weren't able to resupply Ukraine with uh, weapon systems, with ammunition, Ukrainians would be in a lot of trouble, right? And Taiwan is an island, and resupplying it would be extraordinarily challenging in the face of a Chinese blockade and uh, uh, being so close to the mainland, uh, being able to uh, establish a, a, a contested airspace um, over the island. Um, you know. You know, let's switch from Ukraine to Taiwan for a second here, but um, how do we solve that problem? Because eventually, Taiwanese are going to run out of everything, not just ammunition, but food, energy, um, much of it is important to the island. Th this seems like the biggest vulnerability, because uh, the other lesson from this conflict is that great power wars can last a long time, that they may not end in a few weeks or even a few months. And uh, if, if a conflict over Taiwan lasts a long time, you know, the Taiwanese are going to be in a world of hurt, um, not just in their military, but even the civilian population. Yes, and I've always said that I really would like to see a war game that sort of is gaming through um, a Sino-U.S. war over Taiwan at day 60 or 70, um, after precision ammunition stocks have been depleted, after enormous casualties have probably been incurred by both sides already, because I think one of the major lessons also from this war in Ukraine not switch from wrong lessons to lessons is, I think, um, the fact that, yes, um, your forces are going to be depleted quite quickly. Probably your best formations are going to suffer disproportionately more in terms of casualties uh, and loss in material than other formations. So I think one of the lessons that I draw from this is just the ability to quickly regenerate your forces. What can you do to do that? Um, what structure can you set up in peacetime to guarantee that this is going to happen. So I think we probably need to have much more conversations about um, the structure of our reserve forces and Western militaries. How can we really come up with a more comprehensive approach also in terms of our defense industrial base that enables um, this you know, force regeneration um, just in terms of also supplying our forces with munition and so forth in a sufficient manner. But I think what you said is, is right on the money. This problem um, is really very tricky to solve in terms of supplying Taiwan with capabilities, with ammunitions and so forth, prior to the outbreak of a conflict, prior to the imposition of a blockade. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer at this stage how to do this. I mean, the obvious answer would be we should just ship all of this stuff in peacetime to them and then you know, they should stock up massively their supplies. I don't know whether that's really a possibility though at this stage because I think we also need to be carefully managing uh, the relationship between Taiwan and China and... and, and, and well, I think one of the answers, at least um, on the ammunition side, is that they need to invest in their own domestic production of small arms, of their own they have domestic um, anti-ship missile um, capabilities, um, and they need to ramp it up dramatically, and they need to harden it, uh, probably bring it underground into the mountains where it can be destroyed through missile strikes and the like. But I'm very skeptical that any country this time is actually capable to produce the amount necessary uh, 
Do you think China can? It's interesting. In the case of China, they're not really producing precision-guided munitions, short-range ballistic missiles, and so forth, um, at least from what we can tell, at such a scale that they would actually be capable of sustaining a prolonged fight over Taiwan, which I find is also interesting, which again makes me also think, what other capabilities do they think they can apply? In well, maybe like Russia, they think that this can be a quick war. Well, usually most, most big powers uh, think that when they engage in conflict, it's likely going to be quick and, and fairly bloodless, and time and again history has proven otherwise, but maybe, maybe that's you know, one explanation. Um, but I do think that not even China at this stage has the capacity to really, to really quickly replenish its, its arsenals in the event of a high-intensity conflict. So I don't know whether you can actually do that um, in terms of, uh, you know, in relative terms in Taiwan, because of course overall China will have much more capacity to ramp up production than Taiwan, and in Taiwan they're going to run out sooner or later of precision-guided munitions and other stuff. I mean, there's just no way around it. So. I think this needs to be factored in, and so again, I have to move away from the technical aspect of this discussion to say, okay, Taiwan also needs to come up with you know additional innovative operational concepts that factors this in in, or, in order to really project the deterrence by denial posture. And technical solutions or additional munition is one part of the equation, but there are also other aspects that will be very important here. The other lesson here is that the Russians, despite their... Uh, attempts to shut down uh, communications um, on the battlefield with the Viasat hack um, and, and jamming operations really have not made a concerted effort, even till now, to, to destroy um, Ukrainian communications, target their telecommunications infrastructure um, and um, uh, internet cables and the like. Um, that would be extraordinarily easy for the Chinese to do in the case of Taiwan. Much of their communications come through undersea cables um, going to the island. They can be cut. Um, jamming can be very effective um, given the proximity uh, um, uh, to the mainland. Um, and that's something that I think we're not paying enough attention to because probably one of the biggest assets that the Ukrainians have had was the ability to put out Zelensky on TV every night with a message not just to his people but to the world, um, um, talking about the atrocities that the Russians are committing, mobilizing world opinion um, in, in support of Ukraine. Um, if you can't do that in Taiwan, if you can't get the message out, or it's, it's very difficult, or it's even difficult to coordinate with U.S. forces, that would be an enormous Chinese advantage. You're absolutely right. And the center of gravity in many ways in this conflict in Ukraine is really Western public opinion and how to influence Western policymakers. And the Ukrainians were exceptionally well uh, tailored um, in terms of their messaging to Western, Western policymakers. If you would have told me, or if I would have told you um, a year ago that one of the largest uh, counter-offensives in this war was really spearheaded by German anti-aircraft tanks or whatever you want to call these Gepards, right, um, um, in a war against Russia, you would have called me crazy the fact that Germany was is actually delivering military hardware to a country at war. This is a watershed event in German post-war history, for example. Right? Well, the Ukrainians have complained that it's not enough. It's, it's not late, enough, but, enough. But they're also, I mean, you know, if you talk to the people who actually know what's going on on the ground, the Gephardt is doing a really great job. And of course, it's never enough in a war like this where you have, you know, platform systems knocked out on a daily basis and so forth. We just can't keep up with, you know, like replenishing 
you know, their losses, of course, but this, you know, again, there are structural factors here involved that go beyond the politics of not wanting to deliver these capabilities. Um, no, I think what, um, and this is actually sort of the beef that I have with some of the U.S. operational concepts and, um, you know, thinking about future conflict surrounding Taiwan is really this in information dimension, or at least um, this idea that, um, when you talk about or when you look at concepts such as the U.S. Army's new multi-domain operational doctrine and so forth, and its idea that you need to be able to achieve um, cognitive dominance over your adversary, I think it's going to be extremely difficult in the war against China to achieve this. And I think one of the wrong lessons here is also from Ukraine, probably, that it's fairly easy to operate in a, in a non-permissive um, environment where... Um, um, you actually do have access to information and where you actually can conduct um, the command and control um, without really much interference from the cyber dimension or electronic warfare uh, capabilities or the entire electromagnetic spectrum, so to speak. So I would be very, very interested in how the U.S. military is actually thinking about some of these issues. And um, it's, a, it's a big concern to me that maybe you're drawing the long, wrong lessons here again when it comes to the ability of U.S. armed forces in the war over Taiwan to achieve information superiority or an information advantage over your adversary. Because frankly, what I miss in a lot of these doctrinal discussions in the United States is what about if this is not going to be the case? What about if we can't really achieve cognitive dominance or like information superiority or an information advantage in a war against China? What do military commanders then do? Do we automatically switch to some sort of, you know, um, symmetric attritional response? Um, is there any other way how to do it? Doctrine doesn't really, is not really indicative here or doesn't really suggest another course of actions. I think this is something we need to be careful about when we think about how we are going to, how the United States would potentially fight China over Taiwan. And I think the information dimension here is something to, to keep an, an eye on. In other words, every domain may, may be contested. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Franz Stefan Gotti, thank you so much for joining us. Fascinating discussion. I uh, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me.